Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 8. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Demonutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, 
Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and, let, and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, great to be with you this morning, and if I can add to uh, Michael's welcome, particularly if you're new, great to have you here this morning. Now, sometimes I like to start a sermon with a little bit of philosophy, and so here's a quote from a Canadian philosopher, one who spoke at this year's uh, New York University commencement ceremony, none other than the Canadian Taylor Swift. She said this, we are so many things all the time, and I know it can be overwhelming figuring out who to be, and I have some good news for you. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. It's quite an honest reflection, but I think she sums it up quite well. This is it. This is the description of the modern self, the exhilarating and terrifying you only live once self, the, the fear of missing out self, the let it go, it's time to see what I can do self. It's I did it my way self. There are many good things about the self-made self, but today, I want you to see something better. I want you to see a better way to live. I want you to see a better version of yourself, and I want you to see a better saviour than yourself. Because, as we're going to see today, Jesus sees something deeper in us. And, and when we are captivated by who He is, as He looks at us, we will find a better version of ourselves. Not just that, we will find salvation. Now, we've been looking at Mark's Gospel, we're now at the centrepiece of Mark's Gospel, the hinge, because at, on the other side of this chapter, Jesus is going to speak differently, that the way He speaks to His disciples is going to be slightly different. His, his kind of direction in His ministry is going to shift now towards Jerusalem and the climax of His ministry. And as we follow the disciples into this chapter, we see that Jesus is again around a large crowd as they have gathered around Him and He sees them with compassion. And as He sees them with compassion, He recognises that they are hungry 
They've stayed with me for three days, he said, and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, he says, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. And so we have a bit of deja vu, right? Only two chapters ago, did we see the same kind of scene play out where 5,000 men plus women and children were gathered around Jesus, and the disciples were kind of like, well, how are we going to feed these people? Now Jesus is on the front foot here, let's feed them. And you'd expect the disciples to go, yep, know this one, got only one slice of bread, one loaf of bread here, do the same thing, Jesus. Again, maybe they're not so fast, um, and so Jesus says, how many loaves of you have? Seven. He got them to sit down, he broke it, gave us a few small fish, they ate and were satisfied, and then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces, 4,000 were there. Now, we're going to sort of not dwell on this too much because, you know, I guess as we're starting to see in Mark's Gospel, this miraculous miracle, this incredible moment is just one of many. And we've sort of seen, seen that, been there, done that, right? Uh, I don't want to skip over it really, but there's much bigger things to see in this passage. And so, we're going to keep going. What, what we see after this moment is the Pharisees came and began to argue with Him. They want to see a sign. They say, Jesus, we want to see a sign from heaven. Now, as readers of Mark's Gospel, that's not lost on us, right? We're kind of like, ah, uh, you're like five minutes late. <laughs> you, just, you just would have seen like something amazing if you just came five minutes. It was more than five minutes because he's crossed over the lake. In fact, the Pharisees probably wouldn't have even heard at this point about what had happened. And yet, if they had been paying attention, if they had been following Jesus like the crowd had been, they would have seen sign after sign after sign. And so, here we see Jesus' emotive reaction again, sighing deeply in His spirit, verse 12. He says, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And He lumps them in this category of this, what He will say, sinful and adulterous generation. Now, at one level, you kind of go, isn't that the kind of people that need a bit of a leg up? <laughs> Jesus, could you just give them a a little bit, just a crumb. <laughs> but he gives them nothing, not a thing. Jesus is not naive to what's happening in their heart, that they came to test him. They didn't come with kind of, help me in my unbelief. They came to test and deceive. And Jesus sees straight through that, and he is not willing to give them anything. And yet he will give the greatest of time, to those who come with messy faith, little faith. Well, we continue because as um, the disciples uh, got into the boat after this little moment, uh, they'd forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them. Uh, then Jesus gave them strict orders, watch out, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. <laughs> they were discussing this amongst themselves. He's talking about the bread, isn't he? No, he's not talking about the bread. Jesus is talking about what the disciples are naive to and what Jesus is not. That is yeast, you know, that active ingredient that when you mix it through the dough causes it to rise up. And, and if, if the disciples are going to be naive about this, then they will find their ministry shot through with people who are going to test and deceive an active uprising, as it were, from the inside. But Jesus sees the heart he doesn't see just the externals, he sees the heart. He sees their deceiving ways, their hypocrisy. In what ways are our good intentions 
our familiarity, our own hypocrisy, preventing us from seeing Jesus. That's the problem with the Pharisees. They can't see Jesus. They only see through their filtered, hypocritical hearts. They don't see the Son of Man, they see a threat to their religious ways. And as the disciples kind of freak out about the bread and Jesus chastises them, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? We ask the question, are they at risk of also not seeing and missing out? Of Jesus cutting them off, not giving them anything more? He says, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? He leaves that hanging. Don't you understand? I don't know if they understood or not at that point. He, I mean, Jesus answered their question, speaking more about bread, which is the reason, I don't know, whatever, right? No, I don't think the disciples are at risk of being cut off. I don't think the disciples are going to miss out. I think even in their smallness and messiness of faith, they are following Jesus. They are learning more. They are open to Him in a way the Pharisees are not. The Pharisees are cynical, contemptuous, cancerous. Watch out for it. No sign will be given to it. The disciples are unbelieving at times, confused, messed up, lacking faith, and yet they still follow Jesus. Mark brings our attention to the, to, to, to the disciples seeing but not seeing in this next miracle, because that they are partially seeing Jesus. And, and Mark wedges in this little miracle of a blind man who, when Jesus goes to heal him, puts his hands on his eyes and asks, do you see anything? And the blind man looks up, well, he's not blind at this point, he says, I see people, they look like trees walking. Was Jesus having an off day? <laughs> did, did, uh, did, did this guy not have enough faith? No. No, I think Jesus is doing something particularly here, Mark is bringing our attention to it, that is the disciples have partially seen who Jesus is. They see Jesus as though he was like a tree walking around, like this guy sort of sees people, right? Uh, but Jesus affirms that partial vision, saying, keep looking, keep trusting. Again, Jesus placed His hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. This is like a living metaphor of, will you see Jesus clearly? Then He sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. <laughs> what? <laughs> This is part of Jesus' sort of weird PR campaign. Don't tell anyone about this stuff. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want people seeing a miracle worker, a sign giver. He wants them to see what the sign's pointing to. He wants them to fully have their sights restored in seeing who Jesus is as the Christ. And this is where we're kind of aiming towards. This is the centerpiece of Mark's Gospel. This is the moment when Jesus asks, who do people say I am? Here's the disciples gathered around Him at this point. It's a quiet moment. And He says, who do people say that I am? They answered Him, John the Baptist, or some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. 
Now, in answering like that, they're basically saying, of all the great people uh, in the Old Testament, in the, in the story of God and, and His people, you're up there, Jesus. People think you're kind of, you're one of those, you're kind of, you're really doing a great job. Well done. <laughs> a little while ago, uh, I think nearly 10 years ago now, uh, this book came out. It was, uh, it's written by uh, a, um, a Skyner, who's a computer science professor, and Ward, who's a Google engineer, and they analysed as much data as they possibly could that was available. You know, with Google Books and whatnot, you can hoover up a lot of data. And, and they looked analytically at who is the most influential person in all of history. Guess what the answer was? Jesus. Jesus was the most influential, is the most influential person. So, it's kind of like, this is the answer that the disciples give. Jesus is is one of the great, He's one of the most influential people in the world. But that is not the real question. The real question is when Jesus asks His disciples directly, who do you say that I am. Who do you say I am? Jesus says. Who do you say I am? Jesus says to us. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. That Jesus tells him, or strictly warns him, do not tell anyone about that. I'm sure it's a moment for Peter to say, yeah, high five, I've got the right answer. But we're going to see the high fives are going to have to wait. When, G- when Peter says that he's the Messiah, he is picking up on the whole Old Testament story. That is the way that God will bring about salvation. Uh, throughout the whole Old Testament, God had raised up prophets and kings to lead God's people, and yet all of them were going to refer to one that was greater than them. And so when King David, the greatest king through the Old Testament, Uh, was on the throne, even he recognises 2 Samuel 7 speaks to one that will sit on the throne forever in the light of David. He knows that he wasn't going to be the king forever and yet his kingship was pointing towards the Messiah, the anointed one, the royal one of God who would be the chosen one to bring salvation uh, through the the latter prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, The figure of the Messiah is the one in whom the government will sit on their shoulders the one that will bring about judgment and restore Zion to glory, even though it was in tatters. And so, there was much writing on this Messiah figure. And indeed, many people uh, around this time of Jesus were even claiming to be a Messiah figure, had little gatherings around them. I'm not sure if you knew that. Jesus wasn't the only one who sort of was thought to be the Messiah. There were all kinds of campaigns, even revolts around military kind of figures, and many indeed had thought, that the Messiah was going to be a militant kind of figure to overthrow the shackles of the Roman Empire, to bring up the uprising and restoration of Zion. And that's helpful because, Jesus goes on, then He began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, remember that's kind of, that's the divine title from from Daniel chapter 7, the one who will appear like the Son of Man on the cloud of heaven, It was necessary for the Son of Man, this Divine One, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, 
and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. It's the first time that Jesus has spoken openly about what is going to happen to him. Peter, that high-fiving, right-answer kind of guy, took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) That is a big call. Makes me think of uh, this. (laughs) <laughs> you were supposed to be the chosen one. That's, um, that's taken from an annoying Star Wars uh, movie. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Uh, P- Peter had this idea of who Jesus would be, the chosen one, the one that would bring salvation. That kind of figure is not the one that gets rebuked or sorry, gets, uh, has to suffer uh, and will be rejected and, and will die. That is not in the kind of future of... of the Messiah, right? But if we're to stick with this kind of scene for a moment from Star Wars, it, there's sort of, this is a kind of that, that lava scene where we're on that kind of hellish kind of uh, planet. It, it kind of helps us in how Jesus responds, right? Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan get behind me, Satan, you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. He doesn't say to Peter, oh, Peter, you're close, matey, just, just hear me out a bit more. He says, Satan, he directly speaks to the source of Peter's misunderstanding, of his deception, You are not thinking about God's concerns. You do not see things properly, Jesus is saying. You are only seeing your version of things. You are only seeing your little plan. (laughs) This is a a great moment of temptation for Jesus, I have no doubt. I keep sort of referring to this. How easy would it have been for Jesus to snap His fingers and bring down a legion of angels to lead a rebellion or kind of revolt or uprising and, and, and squash the Roman Empire and, and to restore the temple in Zion. Oh, how that would have been easy for him. And Peter, as he holds out that kind of vision, would have tempted Jesus to disobey God's will, which would have, which, and God's will here is going to lead to the enthronement of the Son of Man, the salvation of God's people, the judgment of the world. Jesus is calling out the source of this disobedience of this rejection of the call to discipleship and obedience to God's will. And yet, as Jesus calls out the source of that, Satan, He is reminding Himself of the goodness of His own Father, the goodness and faithfulness of Him and His will to seek and save the lost, of which Peter is one, See, Jesus' death is not going to be an accident of the strong arm of fate. Jesus is not going to go to the cross as a plan B as people turn against Him. You know, as we've seen through Mark's Gospel, the more Jesus does, the more goodness He does, the more people He he saves from the perils of, of death, of sickness, the more He teaches about the Kingdom of God, the more the opposition rises. And we're not at some tipping point where kind of like, oh, finally, the opposition's becoming so great that Jesus is going to succumb to it. Well, He will, but it's not like that. Jesus is going to give Himself to that. He's going to give Himself to the, the folly of man, the sinfulness of humanity. Jesus is going to show us 
who God is, not as some militant leader, but as a suffering Messiah, and in that He will show us how God sees us as lost and in needing salvation. Jesus wants us to see what He sees, God's concern, not humans' concerns. He wants to see the compassion of God, not just compassionate in our circumstances, but compassionate in that we are lost and dead in our sin. Jesus wants to see that God has time for us as He guides us into truth and love. Jesus wants to help us to see that God has glory for us, for we are more loved than we would dare realize. It is only with eyes of faith and an open heart that we are going to perceive the identity of Jesus as the suffering servant, as the very expression of the heart of God. And Jesus then goes on to explain what it looks like to respond rightly when you see Jesus rightly. He says this as He calls the crowd alongside now with the disciples. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This would have been an absolutely wild statement then, but I tell you what, it is preposterous now. For in the times when Jesus spoke this, people lived in a, what can be called a collectivist society, that is the kind of, you, you defined yourself by the way you were brought up, your family, uh, the particular part of town that you lived in, your occupation, all of these things kind of defined who you were. And it would be like as though dying to self would be kind of, you know, changing teams, as it were, <laughs> to sort of not define yourself by these things, but now to define yourself by Jesus. But now, as Taylor Swift helps us realise, if we hadn't realised already, we've already said no to all of that stuff defining us. All that's left is me. And Jesus is now saying, give up on that too. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That is, put to death your old self. <laughs> Again, Jesus with the PR, you could make this a bit easier, you could make this a bit kind of more attractive, right? <laughs> but Jesus is not speaking about just some arbitrary way of religion. He is speaking about the heart of God and what He has done for us and how we are to respond in doing the same to follow Him. So, let us spend the final minutes of this sermon thinking about what is Jesus actually calling us to do and comparing that to being yourself. And then, just like Jesus, I'm going to call you to respond just as Jesus asks His disciples to respond. So, what is Jesus actually meaning here? Deny yourself and take up your cross. Well, denying yourself is, it's a wholly selfless thing, right? To deny yourself is usually to do something for others, for others' sake, and denying kind of what, what you would like. So, for instance, uh, when I ask myself in the morning, what do I want to do? Usually, I give that up so I can listen to some annoying kid's song or, or watch some annoying kid's TV. Uh, I give that up so that they, my kids might have some things that they want in the morning. That's a really trivial example. Jesus is saying we are to do that entirely, wholesale. The central thought of self-denial is disowning any claim 
that might be urged by the self, a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to say yes to God. And when we, when we put it in that frame, we realise that Christianity is not lived in kind of the rules of kind of bits and pieces, it's an all-of-life thing. Jesus is asking us to give our whole life to Him. But because this is in such stark terms, I think it is important to say this is not about self-hating. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, He's not calling us to hate ourselves. C.S. Lewis um, helpfully puts this in the frame of gospel humility. That is, the selflessness that we are called to here is really a call to think less about yourself, not less of yourself. I think that's helpful because we shouldn't think lowly of ourselves because Jesus thinks most highly of us. He's actually the one who gives His life to us because He thinks we're of that worth. The problem is that we cannot cross the gap between ourselves and God on our own steam. There is nothing that you can give, not even the whole world, to cross this gap. The only way is to lay down our life and receive Christ who lays down His life for us. That is the only way. So, let us not hate ourselves, but let us submit to Christ. We still have this kind of picture of, you know, when, when, when two people marry, they, they give themselves wholly to one another. Now, at times that will sort of default into sort of a transactional kind of relationship, that is kind of like, you know, uh, you do this for me and I'll do that for you, uh, or kind of, we'll only love each other if you love me. No, 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 there is this kind of beautiful picture in the Scriptures of marriage being that entirely self-giving, submitting to one another. But, as I will say in the marriage course, your spouse is not your saviour, and many of us are not married. It is just a picture of the marriage between us and Christ, as it were, actually, because Christ wholly gives Himself for us. He dies where we ought to, and only asks us to deny ourselves and take up our cross in response to the One who dies for us. Now, as I've said, you cannot cross the gap between yourself and God on your own. Jesus says that. What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and, let, and yet lose his life? What would it look like to be on that last day, having lived, lived a life of, of yourself and of your own making by ignoring God and then saying, hey God, check out my awesome job that I had. <laughs> or hey God, see how I love my family well. Or God, check out my car collection. Or God, hey, I didn't even cheat on my tax. I even gave some money to charity. Now, all of those things belong to God. And you ought to be speaking to God about these things. And yet, how foolish it is to think we could wave these things in the air as if God would be pleased by those and that that would cross the chasm between your sinfulness and salvation. The only way to cross that gap is Christ. And He has given Himself by dying for you and asks us to respond, that we would be the same, that we would give up ourselves and define our life now entirely in Jesus. 
Alternatively, you could just be yourself. Now, being yourself is just a life of, you know, singing the heart song of your life, looking to find your true self. And in many ways, it's an admirable thing to do, to try and find that authentic, true self. I commend to you this book that I've been reading over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Brian Rosner, who used to be a lecturer of mine at Moore College, now the principal of Ridley down in Melbourne, uh, he's just written this called How to Find Yourself and How Looking Inward is Not the Answer. Now, he'll admit that there are good things in the be yourself mantra, that is, authenticity, finding, being authentic is a good thing. Uh, inclusivity of marginalised people is a good thing that's coming out of find yourself by, you know, living out yourself. Even self-reflection is a good thing that's also emphasised in the modern mantra of things. But, he says, it's worth noting that there's trouble in paradise. Anxiety has never been higher. Loneliness is, a, is an epidemic. The freedom of defining ourselves has become a burden. Even Taylor Swift has to admit that. And he says, I'm not sure that our internal resources alone are enough to live the good life. And so, if we think of the good life as more than happiness, but actually living in the existence of weakness and suffering, of knowing how to respond to enemies and do justice, of how to respond to pride and envy, do you have enough internal resources to do all of that well? Brian will say, no. Jesus will say, no. And more than that, on that final day, if you've lived your life by yourself, He will be ashamed of you. He will be devastated and also stand over you in judgment because He has given Himself for you, so that you might find all these things and more, and how foolish it would be to respond by saying, no thanks, I'll do it my way. Will we see Jesus as the one who offers life and life to the full, even if it means giving up ourselves, so that we might find a better self? The thing is, is some of us are getting to that age where you're starting to realise that maybe you don't know yourself as well as you thought. You don't know your spouse or even close ones as well as you thought. The self-knowing project really never comes to a conclusion. We are mysterious creatures, are we not? <laughs> and yet there is one who knows you in full and His name is Jesus. And He sees the brokenness of your life. He sees you in love and compassion also. And what He does in response to that is to die for you and ask you to now find your new true self in Him. And that kind of language is littered throughout the New Testament. Your old self has died, your new self is in Christ. We now start a new project, a new self-discovery project, but in the embrace of a loving Father having been saved by Jesus. And so, Jesus is saying to His disciples, as much as He is saying to us, who do you say I am? Am I just some teacher? Well, don't die for a teacher. Don't give yourself up for a mere miracle worker. Do you see Him as the lover of your soul, as the one who sees you in full, 
as your Saviour, as the Lord Almighty, as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Will you say in response, for as much as you have given your life for me, I will surrender myself to you. I will live every part of my life in worship towards you. Because, friends, the only way what Jesus is saying here makes sense is if it is in response to what Jesus has done for you. Our life, our sin, our desperate need will only be revealed to us when we see what Jesus sees and when we see what He has done for us. Jesus is calling us home. He's calling us to follow Him. What will we say? Let me pray. Oh, Father, there is much that clouds our heart, much that filters what we see and what we hope. Father, would you bring us to a simplicity of seeing everything through Jesus? Would you help us to live for Him? Would you help us to be open with Him? Would you help us to trust Him in everything? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.